So we're, uh, we're wrapping up this week the series on great hymns of the faith, and uh, with obviously, and can it be, as the screen indicates. Are y'all recovered from Thanksgiving? Y'all okay? Y'all doing all right? It takes about two or three days, you know, to recover from that turkey hangover. So, so this is uh, uh, one of the, uh, actually, uh, more worldwide, more well-known hymns of the Methodist movement. Now, I know y'all are finding it a little bit different and difficult, and you should know this is actually uh, probably uh, the first hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. Uh, remember in this day and age when we talk about writing hymns, we're talking about writing the lyrics. The tunes are a different thing from the lyrics. Uh, so he wrote this. It's probably the, probably the first hymn that he actually wrote. It was published in 1739. Uh, it was originally sung to a different tune, which was easier. No surprise. And was sung widely across the Methodist world. Uh, and, and then it kind of dropped off the map for a while. And it came back in the middle of the 20th century. And if you were to go with this tune that we sang this morning, and if you were to go now to any kind of global Wesleyan gathering, and by that I mean uh, not just Methodists, but also the Wesleyan Church, the Nazarenes, Salvation Army, Pentecostals, all the different branches of the Methodist movement, if you were to go to almost any global gathering, you would hear this hymn sung. Uh, outside the United States, it's, it's pretty well known everywhere and sung uh, very loudly usually by those groups of people. Uh, and, you know, the Methodists, you know, we used to be called shouting Methodists. Y'all remember that? Uh, some of you, and, and maybe some of you are old enough to remember the days before air conditioning. Um, but my, my congregation in Corpus Christi, South Bluff, uh, the building was originally built without AC and had these huge windows on the side of the sanctuary. And when they first opened the building, they used to open those windows on Sunday mornings to, uh, during worship service to get the sea breeze to come through the building. And there were several folks there that could still remember back in those days in the 1930s and 40s when the congregation would gather and they would sing uh, with the windows open and the neighbors would call the police because they were so loud. Uh, so this is very much part of our part of our history and our part of our tradition uh, and going back to this hymn. Uh, you know, John Wesley, we are very familiar with a lot of his writing and his sermons and things that he said and all that. But in the Methodist movement, his younger brother Charles was really just, just as integral a part of that as John was. In fact, the, it was often said that in the early Methodist movement, it was the hymns that taught the theology uh, to people more than the sermons did. And Charles was the primary writer of many, 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 many of those hymns uh, across the decades when the movement was getting going. Um, he was very much, uh, j just as much a, a part of it, and I'm going to kind of explore that a little bit with you this morning and lay that out a little bit, and also explain a little bit about the background of this hymn. Uh, this is one of those hymns that uh, once you get past struggling with the tune... <laughs> And right, just admit it, you struggle with it, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Once you get past struggling with the tune, once you get past that and you start paying attention to the words, uh, it's one of those hymns that kind of captures all of our experience of God. Uh, let's pray. Lord, come and by the presence of your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to the word you bring us this morning. Uh, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Charles is uh, John's younger brother by four years, and if you go to uh, the church in uh, Coventry, I mean in uh, Oxford, uh, this is up on the uh, painting, is up on the wall in one of the locations, 
And as I said, uh, one of the ways you can almost always tell when the two of them are pictured side by side is Charles would wear the wig, the powdered wigs of the day, and John refused to do so. So if there's two of them there, Charles is going to be the white-haired one, John's going to be the brown-haired. So that's, you know, if it's not labeled, that's how you can tell which one is which. Uh, he was four years younger than his uh, older brother. They both grew up together in Epworth. Uh, this is the reconstructed uh, house they grew up in. Uh, the house actually burned uh, when they were both very young, and there's a famous story around that concerning John. Uh, but it's been rebuilt, and if you go there today, you can go in and, and visit the house and tour through it and, and see it. Uh, they worshiped in St. Andrew's Church in Epworth. Um, and this church is actually 950 years old, roughly. Uh, and I, by that, I don't mean actually the church. What I actually mean is the building. The building is 950 years old. The church is older than that. And uh, <clears throat> when we were in here and visiting, this is uh, where the boys grew up, and the, the steward of the church would, would be like one of our board of trustee people, is talking to us, and he says, for you Americans, we obviously have a reputation. He says, for you Americans, just to help you understand that, when, when your ancestors, the pilgrims, were coming across on the Mayflower, our families had been worshiping in this building for 500 years already. It just makes your head hurt, doesn't it? I mean, it just, uh, but, but this old, old building, and behind that stained glass window out in the, in the uh, church courtyard there is where Samuel Wesley, John and Charles' father, is buried. Uh, but they worshiped in this church as they were growing up, uh, and John later served that congregation. Uh, this is the baptism font where both of them were baptized uh, in this church. Uh, Charles kind of followed John's pattern early in life, kind of followed him along the way, went to school where he did and so forth. And so uh, he followed John uh, to Christ Church in Oxford. Uh, and this is the residence that they lived in uh, when they were there. Uh, this is where they gathered and, and the Holy Club began. Uh, Charles freely admits in his journal that the first year he was at Oxford was pretty much a total waste of time. Spent a lot of time partying instead of studying. I know none of you did that when you were in school. But, but he pretty much admitted that he just blew his first year. And so as they began his second year, it was Charles that actually went to John with the idea of establishing what became the Holy Club. Uh, because Charles knew he needed, he needed that discipline in his life. And so he spoke to his brother John and he spoke to a, the, a George Whitfield. And, and they began this gathering that would come together at 4.30 a.m. Uh, in, their, in their apartment. And uh, would gather there in the morning for uh, a time of prayer. Uh, a time of Bible study, a time of accountability to one another, and a time of sharing communion with each other. Then they would go back to their separate apartments and get dressed and begin the day. And those of you that remember the history, remember that the, the Holy Club, as they called themselves, was uh, somewhat uh, widely ridiculed by the other students at the college who referred to them as that group of guys who think they have discovered a method for holiness. And so a Methodist was originally an insult uh, which God in his great humor, you know, made the name of the movement. Uh, but, but this is where they, that began, and this is the building where they met in. From there, once they got dressed, they would uh, begin their day uh, by going to uh, their first meal of the day in the Great Hall at Christ Church. And if this looks familiar, it should, because this is what the Great Hall in all the Harry Potter movies is modeled after. Uh, and, and, and on that wall, among all those paintings on that wall, is a painting of John and a painting of Charles uh, hanging up there with all of the other great uh, figures of Christ Church College. Um, they worshiped in the cathedral at Christ Church, uh, which is just as impressive as it looks. Uh, and, and not only did they worship here, but it was in this space that they were both ordained as, as Anglican priests. Uh, 
Uh, and so <clears throat> they begin their ministry from this place going forward. John actually would go back to St. Andrews for six years while Charles finished his education. And around the end of that six years was when John decided that he needed to be uh, going to Georgia as a missionary. And his younger brother agreed to go with him. So the two of them came together to Georgia. Uh, they both sailed over on the ship. They both encountered the great storm that that ship did. Uh, both of them went below deck and found the Moravians uh, below deck. And, and Charles was as impressed as John was with this group of Moravians who were in the middle of a storm where they thought they might die, were, were, were in peace and were singing and reading scripture and praying together. Uh, among the, that group that was on ship that day was a gentleman named Peter Bowler, who would be uh, uh, very influential in their life at a later date. So they arrived in Georgia, and some of you are aware that John's ministry in Georgia was less than successful, and if John's was less than successful, Charles was an unmitigated disaster. Uh, and, uh, and he actually left and went back to England a year before John did um, for a very inspiring and uplifting reason. Uh, Charles came and, and uh, worked with the people in Savannah, and uh, he was quite rigid uh, in what he was willing to do and how he wanted to do things. And thankfully, this part of the sermon comes after baptisms uh, because he insisted on baptism by immersion for infants, and he did it three times for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, completely immersing the, the baby each time three times in a row, which the parents in Savannah uh, seemed to think might be injurious to their children. Uh, actually, he was accused of trying to drown their children. Uh, and, and it became so heated that one of the mothers actually took her, hunter, her husband's hunting rifle and took a shot at Charles, uh, which inspired him to leave and go back to England. You know, when people start shooting at you, it's time to leave town, right? So, so, so he went back and, and, and arrived in England. He was actually back a year before John came back um, and, and was really just pretty much as disheartened and discouraged as John was when John arrived. Uh, they both uh, came back to England thoroughly, um, uh, you know, disenchanted with themselves, uh, feeling that they were failures. And, you know, you read their journals and both of them are, are really uh, quite depressed at that point in time. They encounter Peter Bowler in London. He's now returned back to London by this point and has a Moravian Society meeting in London. They run into him on the street <clears throat> one day, and he invites them to come and join them at uh, one of his society meetings. The meetings are on Aldersgate Street, uh, and Aldersgate uh, is uh, currently the, the location of it, where the gate actually was. Aldersgate was an actual gate into the city. Uh, is, is just about two blocks from St. Paul's Cathedral if you're there today. Uh, and this plaque kind of marks the, the location of where the gate was. And, and very near there was the house where they met. The actual house was destroyed in the bombings of World War II. And there's a, a, a memorial kind of a piece that's put up there called the Aldersgate Flame. Um, it's hard to tell from this, but that thing's actually about eight feet tall. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not a small object. It's on the site where the house uh, was located, and the script on it tells the story of both the Wesleys coming and, and that being the place they gathered with the Moravians in London. Now, people are familiar with the story about John Wesley's Aldersgate experience. On May 24, 1738, his heart is strangely warmed. And he writes in his journal, you know, I'm convinced that my sins, even mine, are forgiven. What, what people aren't familiar is that just a few nights before that, on the night of May 20th and 21st, Charles Wesley had a similar experience with the same group. Um, his experience was around midnight, so some historians will put it in May 20th and some will put it in May 21st. I, I don't, you know, who knows. 
But, but, but he came, and, and in that same group, he also had a similar experience of the presence of God that, that just overpowered him. And he would write in his journal on the 21st, At midnight, I gave myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or waking. I had the continual experience of his power to overcome all temptation, and I confessed with joy and surprise that he was able to do exceedingly abundantly for me above what I can ask or think. Now, it's interesting to me that when you read these two gentlemen talking about what seems like a fairly similar experience, that what you hear in John is this, uh, boy, for the first time in my life, I believe that my sins, even mine, are forgiven. That what we think of as kind of justifying grace, this, this being forgiven and made right with God. But you hear that Charles not only acknowledges that, right, I, I, I'm assured I was safe, whether sleeping or waking, but also he talks about the power of God to be with him, to overcome temptation, uh, that was going to be with him to do for him exceedingly abundantly above what I can ask or think. This this what John Wesley would later formulate as sanctifying grace, this ability to be set free from the power of sin and to live fully into the calling of God upon our lives. So, so Charles kind of pulls that out early and, and actually recognizes that before John actually begins to write about that. It was out of this experience that Charles begins to write hymns. Uh, and he's going to, uh, uh, and can it be, is going to be the first hymn uh, that he's actually going to write that we're aware of. It's the first one of his that was published, and uh, it was published the next year in 1739. And he begins to write that. And if you actually look at the verses, you know, the first couple of verses are about justification, and the second uh, set of verses are really about being set free from sin. Uh, so it's, it's a very kind of complete version of the gospel. And, and he writes about this with a, you know, tremendous power in his life. And around uh, the original script uh, of the hymn, he notates several different scripture verses uh, that he's thinking of as he's writing these words. And here's some of these that, that he notated on his notes. Um, this passage out of Isaiah 53 that we read pretty much every year during the Lenten season uh, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You hear that, that understanding of, of grace and of atonement reflected uh, as you get into Paul's first letter, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Very familiar words. Matter of fact, Jessica used some of them just a minute ago in the words of assurance with you. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. And you hear that reflected again in the first letter of John. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love 
one another. He, for the first time, Charles begins to understand the reality of what this is about. And it moves from being a, a concept to being a reality. It moves from being an idea to being something that's real in his heart and soul. It moves from being uh, some abstract out there to being this relationship with Christ. And he begins to grasp the reality of it. As I was uh, doing my, my studies this week and, and doing my devotionals, there was this, uh, a devotional by J.D. Uh, Walt on the seedbed text, and, and he was talking about the, the scene where Jesus stands before Pilate and the crowd is crawling for his crucifixion. And J.D. writes these words. Crowds are insanely dangerous entities. In a crowd, no particular person holds power, yet together they hold a collective form of power bordering on absolute because no individual person holds power, no individual can be held responsible. This explains the danger of a crowd. Extraordinary power without personal responsibility. Isn't this what killed Jesus? Sure, we can blame the religious leaders and we can blame Pilate. We can even blame Judas. What good will it do, though, to blame the crowd? This is precisely the way we escape personal responsibility. We delegate our guilt to the crowd where it can never be absolved because it will never be felt. The crowd never pleads guilty. This is how the gravest of injustices happen. In fact, this is how the greatest injustice in history went down. The gospel of Jesus Christ is how the gravest injustice in history of the world became the most gracious invitation for all eternity to come. The miracle of redemption happened because the blameless one took our blame. He was crucified by the collective crowd of the human race, all of us together. We don't stand in the shoes of the Sanhedrin. We don't play the role of Judas. While we may identify with Peter, we can't play his part either. We, the human race, find our voices in the voice of the crowd. In the cruelty of their collective cry, crucify him. Did you see what I just did there? In the cruelty of their collective cry, cry. Who is there? Exactly. There is them, and they are always someone other than me. The crowd killed Jesus, but grace can't be received by a crowd. Grace can only be received by a person. That's what salvation by grace through faith means. It happens when I decide to take step out of the crowd and take personal responsibility, not for my part of the crime, but for the whole thing, as though it were solely my fault. Only then do I finally realize the person who bore no responsibility for any of it actually took on total responsibility for all of it. Salvation by grace through faith means coming to the experiential ownership that I deserve all the blame Yet because of the finished work of Jesus' death and resurrection, I am now deemed blameless. It was my fault, but I'm deemed faultless. I cannot bear that responsibility, neither can I absolve myself of it. Only God can. It astonishes me even to write it, much less to speak it aloud. I only need believe it. Only that will make me the kind of person God had in mind when he first imagined me. There's no better news than this. This, my friends, is the gospel. And that understanding and moving from concept to experiential reality 
immersing ourselves into the reality of, of who we truly are, but also of what God has done for us. And what Charles picked up immediately was not only was it that he was now blameless, but that God's power was going to free him from that past sin and guilt and all the things that would hold us in that pattern of life and set us free to live the way God truly intended us to live. And so he reaches across and he draws on the story out of Peter's uh, release from prison in Acts. The very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. The angel said to him, Fasten your belt and put on your sandals. He did so. Then he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. After they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane, when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. If you go on and read that story, Paul, uh, Peter goes to the house where all the disciples have been praying for him, and he knocks on the door. And they come and they, they look through the, open the little peephole, and they look through the door and they see him out there, and they think that he's a ghost. And so they don't let him in. It takes one of the maids of the house to go and open the door, recognize that it's really Peter, and open the door and allow him to come in. Remember, they've been praying for him to be released, but they don't believe what they're seeing. Peter's been praying to be released, but he doesn't believe it when the angel releases him. And isn't that our story a lot of times? You know, we pray for it, we pray for it, and we long for it. And then when God does it, we don't believe that it's really happening. And that was one of the things that Wesley, Wesley recognized, right? The dungeon was infused with, with God's light. I mean, it flamed and, and the chains fell off and I was set free. He understood that the power of God was setting him free from his past sin and his past guilt and all the things that held him captive in the power of sin so that he could live into being all that God was calling him to be. And Wesley got that and he identified that out of this story and he remembered the boldness that was spoken of in Hebrews. Uh, Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful I mean that night was not just forgiveness for Charles but it was it was release and empowerment for all that he was to be and from that point forward Charles Wesley would write two hymns every week uh, first starting in his study in Bristol And, and, and the number of them is so numerous that we're not really sure how many he actually wrote, no one knows for sure. Somewhere probably between six and 9,000 hymns that he penned. 
And those were circulated widely throughout the Methodist movement and, and became an important part of the Methodist movement. But, but he also continued to be an important part of the presence of the Methodist movement in the city of Bristol. He and John established the first preaching house for Methodism in England called the New Room in Bristol. It's about three or four blocks from where Charles's apartment is. And, uh, and, and when John was traveling all over England, Charles was the one that filled this pulpit and preached. In fact, there's a famous story of a riot that took place in Bristol when uh, the labor unions and the owners of the factories could not work their differences out, and, and, and it began to be very tense, and, and pretty soon they had a confrontation and a protest, and that became violent and became a riot, and Charles waded into the midst of that, into the midst of the fighting, and stood on a box in the middle of that and began to preach and quieted the riot and convinced them to return to negotiations instead of continuing the violence. His presence continued to be in Bristol until just a few years before his death, when he would move into London to be near his brother John. And there he would share the pulpit at the City Road Chapel. This was an old cannon foundry in London that they purchased and re, uh, reworked, repurposed uh, to be a worship place for the Methodists that were in London. And, uh, and he preached there pretty much up until uh, the time of his death. He actually, although he was the younger of the two, he actually preceded John in death by about three years. And behind the chapel is where both of the brothers are buried under this monument. Um, their mother, Susanna, is buried across on the other side of the street from the chapel. Uh, in the cemetery across the street. So he had this, this long history that sometimes gets lost in our telling and remembering of who we are as Methodists. But, but early on, he was the one that put words to our experience of the power of God in our lives. Uh, a song that would be sung for centuries. Sung for centuries. The first time I sang that, I struggled with the, uh, the tune. I can remember, oh gosh, I'm thinking, who wrote this? Uh, and trying to you know, get through it and follow all the runs and everything like that. But, but once I got to the point where I kind of had the music down, I began to listen to the words, and I, I thought, well, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that exactly what we experience? Uh, the forgiving grace of God and the empowering grace of God. And, and, and I remembered sitting on banks of the Frio River some almost 50 years ago. Uh, when I first encountered that powerful love of God. Coming to that place, uh, hmm, very much aware of, of the darkness that was within me at that point. Because I was at a place in my life then that I was convinced that there was something fundamentally flawed in myself. That no one could love me. And therefore I was justified in doing whatever I wanted to whomever I wanted to get whatever I wanted. And so in that place of darkness, uh, I found myself on the banks of the Frio River for, for the first time that night, being overwhelmed as the heavens opened up and God poured love on me, and I realized that actually God could love me even at that point. And not only was it a matter of understanding that God could love me even at that point, but understanding that God would give me the power to leave that behind to walk away from the guilt and the shame of who I had been and what I had done and to be able to be free of the addictions that I was entrapped in and the violence and to step into a whole new path of life. And, and when I sing that hymn and I listen 
to him telling the story, not only of his forgiveness, but of Peter being set free and having confidence to live, is like he's telling my own story. And it's like he's telling your own story. And, and if you hear that and you think, boy, I don't know that that's my story, then I'm going I'm to go with his brother John who said, you know, if you don't have this yet, pray for it. Don't be satisfied until it is your story because this is what God desires for you. Three hundred, almost 300 years ago, Charles Wesley wrote those words and captured that overwhelming experience and passed it on. And my friends, it's still true for us today. I can remember sitting there thinking, this amazing love, how can it be? How can it be? Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for our brother Charles. We thank you for his ability to, to take this, this overwhelming experience and, and, and put it into words that would speak to us still today. And we thank you even more for the love that lies behind those words that you poured out upon him and you've poured out upon so many others across the centuries for that love that comes to us in the midst of the dark places we're at, that brings light into our darkness and hope into our despair, that wipes away our shame and our guilt and brings us back into relationship with you and then shines a light on the path before us, that gives us the power to walk as the children you created us to be. And Father, we confess that we don't understand how it is. And so all we can say to you is, is amazing love. This gift of amazing love. How can it be? And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, I invite you.